My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. Glad you guys are with us this morning. Uh, as we jump into the first part of the text of Mark chapter 15, I keep... Um, I keep turning these last two pages in my hard copy of Mark. It's like two more pages, two more pages. My brain says we're close, and my, my heart says I almost don't want it to stop, but it's kind of where I'm at. So we'll start this morning um, with uh, reading through our text. So I'll read through Mark chapter 15. Uh, and as a reminder, we have moved the what is God doing in you through the portion of Mark we've studied so far to the end of the lesson. So let's read through Mark chapter 15. And good morning to those of you that have joined us online. Hello, everybody there. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder for in, the, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, 
Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark chapter 15. So in today's lesson, if you got your hand out, we're on page 511. I thought we were going to get to 600 in this. We're not going to quite get to 600, I don't think. So. Uh, but this is available online as well for those of you online at OurSundaySchool.com. But uh, in today's lesson, uh, the literary structural observation note that I wrote was the last major question mark character comes on the scene, uh, and that's Pilate. And it's something interesting. We're going to talk a lot about Pilate today because he, he influences a great deal of chapter, well, <laughs> he thinks he influences a great deal of chapter 15. Uh, he is used to influence chapter 15. But I'll hang on to my remarks until we get to Pilate. So verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, so let's set the stage, what had been happening through the night, what happened the, the night before? Yes, this mock court, right, in the courtyard of the high priest. So Caiaphas's house, they got the Sanhedrin together and uh, decided that they were going to go and try to have Jesus executed. Now, the, the problem with their plan was that at this point in Israel's history, Israel wasn't in charge. So they had some structure in place, but there was, a, there was a group above the Jews. Who was the group above the Jews? Rome. So Rome was in charge. So the Jewish religious elite had to go get permission from the people who were actually in charge, which is, if you read all through Mark's gospel, I did this this week, with the lens of the people who act like they are in charge are not, it's, it's even sadder than it was originally, right? Because you just, you, you, this is not who was in charge. So they've got to go get permission from Pilate to actually have Jesus executed because they didn't have the authority to do it themselves. 
So as soon as it was morning, this is daybreak, the chief priests held consultation. Now, the only other time this word consultation is used is in Mark 3, 6. So flip back over there for just a second. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. So this is where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Right, he stretched out his hand and he was restored. In verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. And we, we talked a lot about Herod and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not on the same page. Like these were, this is one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friendish for the minute while we go accomplish this thing, right? So when we fast forward to Mark chapter 15, and we see the elders and the scribes and the whole council, they're mostly-ish on the same page, but inside the council itself would have been some Sadducees, some Pharisees, some true believers. It would have been a, it would have been a mix of a variety of theological backgrounds. So think about this not as... Um, I don't know when you were a kid, if you read the Bible thinking that everybody was from your faith background. I, I had a tendency to do that when I was a little kid. I read the Bible and was like, oh, well, they're all Baptists. Of course they're all Baptists. This is what it is. Think about this as more of a, well, we got some Baptists together. We got some Lutherans together. We got some Methodists together. We got some Episcopalians together. Like this is a, a collection of themes uh, <laughs> variations on a theme, if you will. So you got the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So this council is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest court in the Jewish land. So they bound Jesus. And this word for bound uh, can also be translated or used in a sense that you are in prison. And it's the exact same word that's used of Barabbas in verse 7. So right off the bat, Mark identifies Jesus as being bound and Barabbas as being bound. So there's a, you're like, oh, that's interesting use of this similar word there. Okay, maybe something's going to happen. Yes, absolutely, something's going to happen. Shockingly, stunningly, something's going to happen. Uh, in Mark 3, verse 27, um, I, I hesitate to try to read too much into what Jesus is saying but when he's talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and in verse 27 in chapter 3, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Like, the temple structure was God's house. And one of the things that they're doing here is they've got Jesus bound up, and they're going to in a very real sense, misuse the entire temple structure and all of its religious, political, and monetary resources to take over the strong man's house for their own gain. So Jesus doesn't specifically, explicitly say, hey, this is a prophecy about me, but it overlays very nicely, right? So I just want to be careful with that. All right, so they bound Jesus, back to verse 2, uh, verse 1. In chapter 15, they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. All right, so let's talk about Pilate for just a second. Actually, we're going to talk about Pilate for probably 10 minutes. So, uh, Pilate, if you do, <laughs> this is my funny story for the day. 
If you do a Google search on Pilot, you will not get results on Pilot. You will get results on Pilates because Google will take Pilot and turn it into Pilates, right? I was having this conversation with Dave and Margie last night, and Margie was like, well, couldn't you just type in Pontius Pilot? And I was like, well, Margie, if I could spell Pontius, I would type in Pontius Pilot, but I can't spell Pontius Pilot, right? She's not happy. So Pontius Pilot. So what do, we, what do we know about Pontius Pilot? Somebody tell me what we know about Pontius Pilot. He was a, he was a, a relevant leader there, right? Do you know what level he was? What's that? He was a governor, yes. So you think about him as a governor of a state. So he was the governor of the state of what? Basically of Israel, right. Yeah. So think about him. So who would his boss have been? Like you think about the, the structure of the Roman hierarchy. Who would his boss have been? Caesar. Which Caesar? Do we know? We talked about him like six months ago. No, Augustus is when Jesus was the baby, right? Tiberius was the guy in charge at this point. Now, there's two shockingly famous documents that are quoted almost every single week in tens of thousands of churches all across the world where Pilate is mentioned in both. What are those documents? They're recited in Sunday morning worship services. You know the documents? Yeah, so one's the Apostles' Creed, and one's the Nicene Creed. There are three human beings mentioned in both of those creeds. Jesus Christ, Mary, and Pilate. And you might be thinking, Pilate's like a footnote in the, like, what's the big deal here? All right. Each one of the Gospel writers is testifying to the authenticity of the things that took place. So what do you do when you're telling a story and you need to prove the authenticity of the things that take place? You tie them to a timeline. This is when this happened. This is when this happened. This is when this happened. So that we who come, <laughs> and I don't, I don't have a firm belief that the gospel writers thought that somebody was going to be reading their work 2,000 years later. They, to me, that's a bit of a stretch And when they thought Jesus was returning. But we, 2,000 years later, can do historical research and figure out, like, oh, I know with quite high certainty that Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, serving under Tiberius from the year 26 or 27 to 36 or 37. And you're like, well, that's a, that's a pretty tight timeline for something that happened 2,000 years ago. It sure is, because the Romans wrote a whole bunch of stuff down. They were really, really big on marking their territory with, here's who's in charge at this time. And here's who's in charge at this time. Here's who they reported to. Here's how this worked. And all, okay. The crazy thing is that we know almost nothing about Pilate other than what's written in the Gospels. We don't know where he was born. We don't know where he was trained. We don't know what his family was. We actually don't even know what really happened to him after. There's, there's um, I think it was Tertullian that said, uh, the, the rumor is that he had put down an insurrection. And there were, there were insurrections all the time at this point. Nobody liked being under Roman rule. Um, when we read the text about Barabbas, you saw that he was, a, he, was a, he was a murderer in the insurrection, right? Yeah. What typically happened to insurrectionists is that you die. So Barabbas was being, in, he was being held in prison 
until he was going to be crucified because of his insurrection. Well, these things popped up all over the place. So there was a, uh, Josephus uh, talks about an armed group of Samaritans. So the Samaritans are the, you know, you're half this, you're half this, nobody liked them. They were at this village near uh, Mount Gezrim where they were, they were digging to try to find artifacts left behind by Moses, okay? And they were going to sell them. They're going to make money. And they were very likely not going to pay taxes on the money. Pilate got wind of it, sent a group of soldiers there, killed them. Which is kind of heavy-handed. Because if you're the governor of a place that you're not really from, there's a, there's a sense in which you, you want to make sure everybody knows you're in charge, but you don't have the force, the military force. What Pilate had was more like a police, keep the peace level force, not a create peace level force, right? If you, if you want to have a military force to go and take over someplace, that's a whole different level of number than, yeah, as long as everybody's okay, we can kind of, we can sit on top and make sure everything's good. All right. So Pilate goes and he kills all these Samaritans. Some other Samaritans who were friends with the emperor called the emperor not like called, but got in touch with the emperor and said, hey, Pilate's gone rogue here. The emperor calls Pilate back to Rome. Now, this is not a good sign for your political career, right? This is not going to be good. The problem was that the journey and the news from Rome to Jerusalem to get there, to pack everything up, to head back, the emperor died before Pilate gets back. You're like, well, fortunate for Pilate right there, right? We have no other historical reference whatsoever to Pilate. Now, the crazy thing that happened when emperors changed, the new emperor never wanted to deal with the old emperor's garbage. Like you just, I don't care what you did, you're done, you're forgiven, it's fine. Virtually every historian and theologian believes that Pilate, when he got to Rome, the new emperor went, I don't care about you, right? Just, just go do whatever. And he blackly went and retired, and that was the end of Pilate. So I say all that to say this. This guy, who we know shockingly little about outside the Gospels, ends up playing a really significant part in the actual Gospel story itself, and we still say something that he said in Matthew's gospel. Well, I'm going to wash my hands of this. That's like Pilate said that first and documented it. And he's like, oh, well, that's where that came from. Yes, that's exactly where that came from. So this is a little bit about Pilate. Now, one more thing that I learned about Pilate this week that I didn't know before. As governor, Pilate had the right to appoint the high priest Anybody ever heard that before? I dug in on this pretty deep. Multiple sources confirmed that this is the governor's role, was to appoint the religious leader over a territory. Because Rome knew if you controlled the religion, you controlled the people. So Caiaphas was Pilate's guy for basically the 10 years, which was way longer than you're supposed to serve as high priest. He was Pilate's guy for 10 years. When Pilate gets sucked out, Caiaphas's reign ends as high priest. New high priest comes in. Things change actually for the worse. It doesn't get better. It gets more corrupt. 
So something interesting to know there. So in the context of Mark chapter 15, when Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin lead Jesus to Pilate, what I want you to know is that Pilate, for all intents and purposes, is Caiaphas's boss. So keep this in the back of your mind as we walk through the rest of this story. So, like, the level of political wonkiness in the gospel is just like, what in the world? This is crazy. All right, so, they led Jesus away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, I want you to look at where Pilate's name shows up in Mark's gospel. Where does Pilate's name show up in Mark's gospel? 15, 1, 2, 4, 5, 9, 12, 14, 15, 43, 44. Only and exclusively in chapter 15. This is Pilate's part that he is playing, right there at the very end. All right. Now, does Pilate show up anywhere else in the Gospels? Yes, he shows up in basically all of Matthew chapter 27. Uh, he shows up in Luke 3. This is kind of an odd little reference. I'll read this one to you. Uh, this is John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, so we're pegging a date here, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. We're going to get into Herod and Pilate's relationship here in a little bit in a, in a couple of weeks. It was uh, foreshadowing. It was not good. <laughs> like, it was shockingly not good. But they pull a Pharisee, Herodian, let's get together, hate on Jesus, this makes everybody happy, and we'll be okay. They actually become friends after the instance of Jesus. And then Luke 13.1. Everybody flip over to Luke 13.1 for just a second. This is one of the most curious, odd verses in all of Luke's gospel. Because Luke gives no context for it. He just expects everybody to understand it and know what he's talking about. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. And he says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Read it again, because it's, it's super wonky English word structure. It's even weirder Greek word structure. Like, this is, this is a really solid guess at how to interpret and translate this verse. <laughs> About the Galileans whose blood, so it feels like the Galileans are dying here, right? Okay. Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. There. Well, who's the only other... Noun in the sentence, the Galileans. So the Galileans are offering sacrifices. Pilate comes in, kills them, and puts their blood in with their sacrifices. Whoa. Okay. Well, this, this seems a bit heavy-handed. Why, yes, it is. That's exactly what it is. So Pilate has this history of kind of going off on religious-oriented stuff and it not necessarily having the greatest reputation for him in the world, but he didn't care because he's Pilate. He's the governor. At that point, governors could do mostly what they wanted to do. And then we get to John chapter 18, and Pilate drops on the scene in verse 28. Very similar concept here to uh, what happens in Mark's gospel, except you know, John fleshes this out quite a bit more. And we get in some of the other gospels much more dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. There's, they go back and forth, they go back and forth. Pilate sends him off to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. They agree that they got to do something. 
They go back and forth and back and forth. And in Mark's gospel, you almost get the sense that Pilate just asks him one question one time and that's it. Or maybe two questions and that's it. But what I want to show you is that the verbs that Mark uses actually imply a whole lot of repetition in these conversations. So an original speaker would have read this and be like, oh, no, no, no. Mark's, Mark's describing it, but he's summing it up as succinctly as you can using these repetition-oriented verbs. So there's a lot of harmony between the Gospels here. All right, so verse 2. I told you we were going to spend a minute talking about Pilate. Verse 2. And Pilate asked him, this is Jesus, are, now this is a present tense verb, so right now, he's asking you right now, are you the king of the Jews? So pause. What's the answer to that question? Yes. Like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him two words. You said. You said it. Yep, you said it. Okay, verse 3. And the chief priests accused, which seems to be like their only thing that they did, the chief priests accused, and this is a plural imperfect. So this is group repeated activity. And back in chapter 3, verse 2, these people were accusing Jesus as well. This is their fundamental job, is to accuse the Messiah. Their, well, their fundamental job was to recognize and identify the Messiah. Uh, what they actually ended up doing was accusing him. So they accused him of many things. The Greek is actually, they just accused him of much. And Pilate again asked, and here's the word, he asked in the imperfect tense. So he's repeatedly asking him questions here. Saying, and the word saying is not in the ESV, but it is in a lot of other translations, and the word saying is a present active participle, which means on multiple occasions he repeatedly asked. So you've got this, this doubling up of this repetition when you go like, oh, wow, this, this was not a 30-second conversation. No, 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 this would have taken... Uh, quite some time to go this. Now, the ESV has added a couple of words here, the words have and you. What Pilate's actually saying is no answer, none. And so back when we were in the courtyard and the high priest was questioning Jesus, do you remember the high priest repeatedly asked Jesus, no answer, nothing, no answer, nothing, no answer, nothing. And there's this similarity in the speech patterns between the high priest and Pilate, who would have had shockingly different educational and life experiences. But at this point, they are both no answer, nothing. So all these accusations, all these accusations, all these accusations, and Pilate goes on, see, look, how many charges they bring against you? And what would Pilate have expected Jesus to do at this point? Like if, you, if you're the governor and you have the authority to immediately at this point pronounce sentence that this person goes out and is crucified or pronounce sentence and this person is going out and is freed, what would you expect if you're the governor, the prisoner to do? Yeah, plead your case, man. I mean, like what... Silence is not helping you. Verse 
So does anybody know the Apostles' Creed? Like a hot minute ago, right? Pause. He did what under Pontius Pilate? Suffered. suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why do we say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? The verdict of guilty. Pilate declared him guilty and said, you're going to be... like He implemented the actual decree that's going to result in Jesus' death. But I want to challenge the Apostles' Creed for just a second. Like, whoa! Yes, Dave? Okay. Like, by Jesus not giving any testimony, by not pleading his case, he basically made it so that Pontius Pilate had to That's right. answer the That's right. Yeah, the, the weak leader pilot would have seen no other card to play. Right. Right? I, like I've got I've to appease the crowd. I've got to appease the people that I've put in place to run the religious elite. I've got to, like, this is, this is, this is the, I have no choice. I, I can hear Pilate's thoughts right now. I have no choice. And the answer is you always have a choice in every situation, in every scenario. You always have a choice. Yes, I saw Bethany, and then we'll come to Matt. Oh, yes. Absolutely. You've got to keep up the reputation of stopping insurrection because the religious leaders thought Jesus was going to mount an insurrection and overthrow them. Like, whoa, this is a challenge. Yes, man. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy by not answering. Absolutely. Exactly. It was. There you go. The crowd is, the Who, part of all of this. is so there the another? Yes, yes. Is there another leader in Mark's gospel who was just trying to please the crowd and was worried what everybody thought about him? Herod. Yeah. Every leader mentioned in the gospels, other than Jesus, does not come off looking well. They come off looking incredibly weak, right? Everyone. Like, there's no exception. It's ridiculous how weak they are. And I think part of what the Gospels are doing is they're contrasting this is what real leadership looks like and this is what fake, false leadership looks like. And it's really, really scary. So I'm going to come back to the Apostles' Creed. He did what under Pontius Pilate? Suffered. Suffered. If Jesus had made a defense for himself, which he could have, and it felt like Pilate wanted to get him out of this because it didn't. Like Pilate couldn't find anything wrong. He literally washes his hands in front of the crowd in one of the other gospels, in Matthew's gospel. Like his guilt's on you, and they're like, his guilt, his blood is on us and our children, which was already true. They didn't have to say that. It's also on us. So let's make sure we are not anti-Semitic in this. We're like, oh, the Jews. No, 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 no. This is this is really, really bad theology. 
if Jesus had defended himself and gotten out of crucifixion, he would then have not fulfilled the Father's plan. He didn't just suffer under Pontius Pilate, he suffered for Pontius Pilate. And this is, to me, one of these crazy, amazing things. Like We, we think about and ask this question about, well, how could Jesus have loved Judas for so many years and had him with him? And not because he knew he's going to betray him. He's Jesus. That's right. That's what he does. Jesus loved Caiaphas, and Jesus loved Pilate, and he died for them just as much as he died for me and you. Which is just, I almost changed this whole lesson today. I didn't have time. This is my thought when my head hit my pillow last night was how much Jesus loved Pilate. Because he could have truly and deeply embarrassed him here. He didn't. He didn't. Because Pilate had a part to play. And remember, Jesus is still in charge of the timeline. So, Pilate is so stunned, he is gobsmacked at this, that we get verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. And this word, amazed, is actually translated as marveled. Multiple times in 520, 6, 6, 12, 17. This, this is, uh, Jesus teaches something and the crowd marvels. They're like, whoa, we've never heard anything like that. It's crazy. Well, he's the son of God. And then it's used one more time in Mark's gospel. In Mark 15, 44. When the centurion reports back that Jesus was already dead, Pilate marvels. So let's do our application and personalization. All right, application number one, every person plays a part. You've got a part, I've got a part, Pilate had a part, Caiaphas had a part. Every person plays a part. What do we do with that? Well, how about we play our parts for Jesus, not against him? Play our parts for Jesus, not against him. Because we will have opportunity, make no mistake, we will have opportunity to either verbally attest to the fact that we follow Jesus or verbally deny the fact that we follow Jesus. Like this is, we do this every single day with how we show up, the fruits of the Spirit in our lives or lack thereof. And then application number two, uh, power isn't always obvious. Because in this setting, you've got Caiaphas, the whole Sanhedrin, all these other folks around. They're shouting. They're stirring up the crowd. You've got Pilate who thinks he's really in charge. And the king of kings and the lord of lords allowing it all to happen. And the power dynamic and the power structure looks like everything is stacked against Jesus. And the reality is he's got all the power. Like the only reason Pilate's atoms were not springing apart was Jesus Christ in that moment was holding them together. <laughs> like, dude, I'm why you literally exist right now. And this is what you're coming at me with, right? All right, so what do we do with that? So application number two, power isn't always obvious. What do we do with that? Uh, know who it is all about. And my W and who is capitalized there. Know who it is all about. Because I promise you it is not all about Pilate. <laughs> As much as Pilate, with the show of the washing of the hands, wanted to make it about him, it wasn't about Pilate. Like, Pilate is mentioned as a footnote for auditing purposes of the gospel story. 
he is not the point of the gospel story. So with all of that, what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we have studied so far? Landed hard and then took off hard again. So sorry for that, but I, I acknowledge that now. <laughs> hey, there you go. Continuing to build confidence for me to proclaim him to others. Amen. So does the pilot reference scratch the auditor itch? Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. I just think it's incredible that we have records from that long ago. <laughs> like just, just, like I got, you know, we're watching uh, Dope Sick right now on Hulu, and the lawyers are trying to figure out from the Sackler family who knew what and when they knew it, and the emails back and forth, and it was like, this is just impossible. Oh my goodness, it's so difficult. And I'm thinking, we're trying to figure out stuff 2,000 years ago, <laughs> not two years ago or 10 years. I mean, this is just shockingly impressive the volume of testimonies that we have from this time period it's just utterly unbelievable all right anybody else what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far I'm looking down at the notes nope nobody's online either did I stop you Miss Amy okay cool I do these big, deep breaths sometimes because I hate the mask, too. So um, there's that. All right, so next week, Lord willing, we'll start with Mark 15, verse 6. Uh, it will probably take us two weeks to get through that section. Um, so if we will, we'll transition now to our weekly update. Uh, pick a section there. Pray for one of those sections, if you would. I got an email this morning uh, from Julia Gregg. She's one of our members. And... Uh, she is a, and Julie, I am sorry, I'm going to butcher this all to pieces, so my bad. Uh, she functions like a principal in a prison in the state of Tennessee. And so she has teachers that she's responsible for, she helps, and she oversees curriculum. It's just amazing stuff. It's, it's utterly amazing. I mean, talk about the ability to be Jesus in your neighborhood. Like, this is real. So one of her teachers is having a kidney, it's 945, yes, is literally finishing up a kidney transplant right now. It is supposed to end at 10 o'clock. His name is Richard Smothers. So if each of us and those of you online uh, could be praying for Richard Smothers for, he's been on dialysis for four and a half years, um, which 10 minutes on dialysis is enough, but four and a half years, that's a long time on dialysis. Uh, they're finishing surgery now. They have asked for prayer for Richard, the team working on him. Uh, and something that I thought was just really, really beautiful, they asked for prayers for the donor family because there's always another side to that equation, right? So uh, Richard Smothers, if you would, we'll pray for him. And uh, so after you have prayed as a table, uh, then you are free to go and to worship this one who loves us no matter what and demonstrates his love both by fulfilling his father's plan exactly when it calls for him to speak and when it calls for him to remain silent, which whoa that whoa 
That is beautiful stuff. So share the good news, folks. It is good. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.